Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is Monday, August 14th. This will be out the 16th. Um, today we have a uh, we have a very informative and I think you know necessary episode with our guest Kaniella Ng. He's the national director of the Green New Deal Network. I'm sure that if you are listening to this podcast and were involved in any way in sort of leftist spaces or even paying attention to national politics, his name should be quite familiar with her, you. He was a former Hawaii state legislator, and he's somebody who both grew up and you know still does his work in Maui. And um, he's we're going to talk to him about the tragedy of the uh, fires that happened there, the destruction of Lahaina, um, and you know I think that we also talked a little bit about things that can happen in the future going forward. But I think that for many people there, that you know. That's almost like even a, it's like a thing that will happen, but is almost an abstract idea at this point because people are still like we still don't even know how many people have yeah. died. You people know, people are missing, and, right? And that yeah. uh, the way these types of things go is like we probably will never actually know the exact number or the extent of the tragedy. But right now, it seems like it's going to be one of those. It already is, but um, will continue to just get worse for a while, right? as as more things are uncovered so um that is the second half of our show uh tammy how are you doing i'm okay i thought uh it was really great to talk to him and to hear from him um i was going to ask you too jay since you just got back from hawaii though not maui what are you hearing from friends and family there about their engagement with relief efforts or mutual aid well i think people you know when these things happen, unless you're sort of tapped into networks that already do that type of work, it's very difficult to figure out exactly how yeah. one can help. And, you know, you see that with people contributing GoFundMe. You see the sort of chaos of information that happens online where people are like, don't donate to this, donate to this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we saw a lot of that during the summer of 2020. That's what right? I was thinking um, of too. Yeah, exactly. Where nobody quite knew, but people felt very impassioned. And I think that these moments, it's like, so I think a lot of the people that, or the people that I've spoken to in Hawaii right now are sort of going through that, right? Because mm-hmm. they're all in Honolulu. And yeah. um, I mean, look, it's not like it's not connected, but it is a separate island. And, right. Um, and I think that this, uh, that perhaps they're, you know, they might be in a situation like people here on the mainland, right? Or just like, oh, how can I help? And I think the one thing that is different is that I think that there's a much more outward and physical presence to to relief and people are sort of, you know, there are donation spots and things like that that are popping up in ways that, you know, at least here in California, you don't see. Not that okay. people in California don't care. It's just, you know, um, it's not, you know, it's not their people, in a way. And so, yeah. um, yeah, I, the thing that I think Kaniella has sort of done through his political career and, you know, in his advocacy that he's always sort of tried to emphasize the larger systems at play here. And, mm-hmm, for sure. you know, for something like this, it's really, uh, it's really deep, right? Um, you have an island that sort of went through monoculture is sort of the leaching of the land. You have diversion, which is something we talked about of water resources. Mm-hmm. I know that in a f- previous interview, I saw that he gave with uh, Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! He talked about how like there are parts of 
Lahaina that were sort of almost like uh, wetlands. Wetlands. Yeah, people Mm -hmm. like canoed around and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. put boats around, and now all of it is dry land because of the diversion of that water. Mm -hmm. Um, And that for people who are native Hawaiian, I think that there is always a broader sense of, you know, like a bigger, the longer history than, you know, like what just happened to Maui since like it became a popular uh, tourist destination, for example. Well, Um, and I think like in talking to him, it was reminding me of, remember when we did our episode with Julian Uggen about Guam, you know, because of course, theoretically, we know any, you know, student of sort of climate change knows that this will hit people who are living under active colonization first. And then the climate refugees will come from areas that have these political problems imposed on them. And, um, but yeah, I, I, the Maui thing just, yeah, it feels like some sort of terrible allegory, you know, all yeah. of those conditions are there. Yeah. It's been interesting to think about because we always think about climate disaster as being in the near future, right? Like even right. for people who are very concerned about it, it's like, this is what's going to happen, right? Like these are the disasters that are happening. But it seems quite clear to me now that, you know, and I this is not an original thought in any sort of way, but like, you know, um, July was the hottest July on record. Right. It's um, happening now. And that we're just going through it and that these deaths that are piling up um you know they count towards the total of what people said was going to happen it's not like you know there's gonna be some huge apocalyptic event and hundreds of thousands of people are going to die all at once and then we say okay it's on you know it's like no this is what it was supposed to look like uh it's always going to be events that are catastrophic in ways that they wouldn't have been 100 years ago 50 Mm -hmm. years ago right like that's sort of what people are talking about and i think that you know, the more you read about what happened in Maui in terms of vegetation, in terms of, you know, infrastructure, right? it's very hard to not accept that explanation. Like you have totally. to be extremely hard headed or limited in thinking like you can blame the power companies if you want. They certainly deserve some bl- a lot it. of blame, yeah. right? <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a reason why places go up like tinderboxes, right? Um, and it's not nature because you know, places that burn, they burn and then um, they come back and then they burn again. Go on with life. (laughs) Right. Or uh, a place that never burns or that burns sporadically. Right. Right. And certainly not in this area like that. There's something else going on there. And I think that. um, Well, even just in the lifetime of this show, like you have, we were, we've talked, we've recorded episodes when the sky outside your house in Berkeley is like red and black. Right. right and I've been right. in Washington state when it's 110 degrees, which it, it was an impossible. Right. Or New York city, up. right? Or New York like a, city. Right. Totally right. blacked out. So I know I have a, I like, it's, it's a hard thing to think about because at some point, like, you know, I think a journalist impulse is generally to not be alarmist you know what I mean and so sure. like I think that to the extent that you and I are professionally trained in anything it would be to be somewhat <laughs> skeptical of those types of narratives right um but pretty hard to do in the past three to five years yeah um no I don't no I'm not like a doomer in any sort of way right like but um I'm just saying that but it's reality it's just every day it's like right. <laughs> if you don't compile these things up ha- happening around the world and say that there is a root cause to right. it um and that it is getting worse then i don't know it just seems like you're delusional at this point and um 
I think that there is a way in which some people will frame things only in this way and that that can sometimes be annoying because it makes it inhuman, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. I think that people can just be smart and ignore the people who do that and listen to the people who, you know, talk about it in the correct way. I think Kaniela is one of those people. Um, Okay, so without further ado, here's our conversation with Kaniela Ng. Hi, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to start out just by asking you this is a difficult question, or maybe it's just a bit of a strange question, but you know, like, how, how are you doing? You know, like, how I know this is a traumatic event, this is a shocking event in some ways, but, um, and people process that in different ways. But yeah, can you just give me, give us a sense of how you've been responding for the past, you know, past week or so yeah i mean i'm okay when when things so i I, there was a little fire when i went to bed uh, a few days ago and then it was like one structure and when i woke up it was the whole town Uh, so i immediately started texting my friends my family to see if they're okay and everyone i could think of texting were were fine um but you know now we're at the point where 96 people have been confirmed dead uh, only three of which have been identified and mm-hmm. there are still up to a thousand people missing estimated. Um, and that doesn't include like unsheltered folks and undocumented people that may not make that list. So like, as I'm going through Facebook and, you know, looking, looking at like people from middle school and sports teams and church, um, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a little worried. Uh, so, you know, these are hard times. Um, but also like if you do the kind of work that, that I do, um, you know, that no matter how hot the water, when the wave crests, you got to paddle the hardest. Um, so, so that's what I've been doing. Um, just organizing, doing direct aid, fundraising, and making sure we have some control over the narrative as it gets out. So, um, you know, at some point I'm going to have to pause and, and process it all and grieve, but, uh, that's the healthy thing to do but for now it's like there's a lot of work to do yeah can you tell us a little bit just to introduce you to the listeners of the show can you tell us a bit about the community that you grew up um you know where it was uh who the people were that you grew up with um and who you you ultimately represented and then you know now now work in work for sure yeah i didn't grow up political at all or um I don't know. This I was from a working class community, but low income really, um, and it was conservative. Like our household, we were born again Christians. Like pretty much most people of color that come from working class <laughs> neighborhoods, um, and it, it was the belief that like if you work hard, you'll make it. But then my dad passed away like unexpectedly, and that wasn't the case. We needed a lot of support from church. From I was working in the pineapple fields at 14 to help my mom with bills and uh, just relied on a lot of government programs. So that shaped who I am. Um, So in college, like we're first generation college students, my siblings and I, um, that's when I like saw like, Oh, you can become a lawyer or a politician or a doctor like that. Those are actually options. Um, And then I started to see like some of the things I grew up with, like how it rained sugar cane ash on us, how that's like harmful and caused by, 
corporations and just started to see like the bigger picture of stuff and realize like if you really want to quote unquote help people you actually got to empower them and it's not just about like charity work or like support that our church gave but actually about like bringing people together and power um and understanding how power works so yeah. yeah that's that's that that's that's my background and you know who you come from really really shapes who you are and I think from the outside, we're looking at maps of Maui. Some of us, I've never been to the region, so don't know it. Can you describe where in Maui you came up and how you related to the islands? Yeah, so anyone from Maui has a deep tie to Lahaina. If you're from Lahaina, it is like acute, but it's like a, it's not a giant island and there's mm-hmm. not much to do. So everyone that I knew growing up surfed and fished and that's where you do it. Like I caught some of my first waves at Lahaina Harbor. I caught some of my first fish along the shoreline at Oluwalu. Um, it's just my first nightclub experience <laughs> was over there. Uh, so, you know, that's that's the kind of town it is. Uh, and I grew up like more upcountry. Uh, but even there, like it's not really in the news much, but the fires went all the way up the mountain, like, Mm. thousands of feet of elevation the kula lodge which is like a favorite restaurant is when like where my uncles taught me how to date the hetero north the hetero <laughs> script <laughs> um, but like that burnt down like and my my mom uh girlfriend was up in uh kula and like they didn't have power like they had to evacuate and that's that's far so the whole island was really impacted uh but yeah lahaina is like special to everyone on maui Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like uh, I think that a lot of people are learning about Lahaina right now, right? Um, they're learning about what it was. There are a lot of different ways. We, we can talk about that in a bit about how it's been characterized in the press that's been coming out. Um, but I watched an interview that you did uh, recently with with uh, Democracy Now, and you said that Front Street, which is the main drag, I think, in Lahaina. That it was, uh, you described it as a Disneyland ride of the colonial timeline of capitalism, right? Like, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because I found it really interesting. Because I think that, from what I have seen in terms of like what your response has been publicly, is that your critique is very large, right? Um, it is not like oh, you know, it, it is not isolated to this event, but you see this as being almost the the inevitable outcome of huge factors that are at play. And so like that really stuck out to me. And it's like, if you could just, you know, tell us what that means, right? What is the Disneyland of, of colonial, of colonialism? Yeah. I mean, the way I operate just generally in this world is to blame systems, not people. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's the understanding that power isn't monolithic. There's no like single people that hold innate power, like a Disney villain. Uh, speaking of Disney, it's more like people have power because we trust him and trust him with it. We cooperate with existing systems and they lean on institutions. They align certain institutions and then they stand on them. So in order to actually impact their power, we're going to have to cut at those institutions. Um, so yeah, the causes of this fire have been are systemic on multiple fronts there's like the immediate which is our electric utility we have the highest electric uh electric rates energy rates in the nation by far 
like two times, sometimes three times higher than the second place state. Um, like electric bills in my neighborhood are over $600 a month. Um, yet we have infrastructure, like we don't have the underground power lines that any other community with $1.4 million median homes would have, right? We have these old uh, wooden beams. So not only do they not put on the ground, but they don't even maintain them. Uh, that's a result of greed. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's a systemic issue because you're talking about like the mainland shareholders of, of this utility. And then secondly, it's like the mismanagement of our land and water. Lahaina used to be lush. It wasn't a dry fire prone region. It was, it, it had the world's earliest and most innovative aquaculture systems like local fish ponds um, but at the dawn of the 20th century sugar barons illegally diverted water to irrigate lands that they stole and now their descendants are amassing vast profits from controlling our irrigation our land and our politicians uh, so this would have never happened without that like plantation history as well. And then on the most macro scale, you have uh, the climate crisis. It's dry vegetation, high winds, uh, low humidity. Those are all functions of climate change. Warmer air means faster air. Uh, so, you know, while some news outlets are saying you can't attribute this or any particular event to climate change, it's like if you got, if you're rolling dice and uh, you got to hit a six, it's like yeah. obviously if you roll 12 dice rather than two, you're more likely to hit it. And that's what's happening with hurricanes mm -hmm. in Hawaii. Like most of them do miss. And it's unclear if it's like normal fluctuations. But we know that there's way more and they're way harder than it used to be. Um, and it's really irresponsible to not report uh, about those patterns in an honest way. So like the only way out of it is climate mitigation, invest like ending fossil fuels, investing way more, tr trillions more to transition to clean energy as quickly as possible, but also returning the stewardship of land and water to the people. So that's why I do the work I do with the Green New Deal Network. Yeah. Um, we definitely want to ask you about that work as well. Um, but I was wondering if I could just follow up quickly on some of your comments about the climate effects. Um, could you talk about like what you have seen on the island over the last few years? I mean, Obviously, this is this is such the magnitude of this disaster is so great. But I think all of us have been seeing in our lives more things come up weather wise and stuff. What have the people of Maui been dealing with, like, you know, in the last five, 10 years that you've seen that indicate the climate crisis? Yeah, so droughts, fires, all the things, uh, floods are becoming more the norm. And not just not just in Hawaii, but across the globe. Uh, we had the hottest summer ever this year. Yeah. And I, I worry. I worry for my children. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. Um, so it's really clear uh, what where this trajectory is headed. And it's, it's into a really grim, macabre reality. Um, but it's still preventable. So, you know, the urgency, I think, that I feel this week even though I do this work full time, I have mm -hmm. never felt before. It's like we, we talk about climate. I, I still do. I'm doing it right now, kind of like I'm talking about my kids. But in reality, it's not 10 or 20 years. Like tomorrow you can wake up and your home, like your, your school, 
that you send your kids, your church, your grocery store, your shop could all be just gone, reduced to ashes in your community tomorrow. Like that, that's where we're at right now in this crisis. And that's the urgency that we need to be acting to stop it. And it's just not there right now. Like president, like, first of all, we have an entire political party, the Republican party that's been acting at the behest of the polluters who have been, who have caused this crisis and have manipulated people. And then you have like Democrats who've done some, you know, they passed probably the most consequential bill in the world, but it's not nearly enough. Like we, we need multiple inflation reduction acts every year. We need to declare a climate emergency. We need to end fossil fuels immediately. And they're just not doing it. And anything less than, than that is an insult uh, to all the lives that were lost in this tragedy. I, you know, I, I've been following the news about this quite a bit. And I, um, and I saw that you commented on this on social media. But, you know, there's a story in the Times about, you know, a woman in Lahaina whose house had burned down and the story is kind of like, oh, well, she found a Rolex watch that she had been, uh, this woman was white, that she had been sort of gifted at some point. And, you know, it, it got me thinking, I started looking a little bit closer at some of the news coverage. And I will say that I don't think that the critique is wrong. Like, it does seem like there is quite a bit of, that the people who are spoken to um, by reporters, Tammy and I both work in the media. We know why this happens. It's because a lot of the reporters are white and they feel comfortable talking to white people. And so when you're walking through town and you ask people, Hey, can I talk to you? Like you tend to talk to people who you're comfortable around. Right. Um, and that, you know, I even saw a photo essay where every single person in the photo who was sort of standing over rubble was white. Right. Like, um, I don't know, like what, do you think that this is, I, I know that you feel like this is a mischaracterization or misrepresentation of, of this, but like, you know, like, why do you think this is happening? And then like, what, what is the effect in terms of uh, recovery or even people processing this? Like, have you been satisfied at all with the media coverage of this? I mean, the reason why I think I've been all over media is because when it broke out the first few hours, there's no mention of local people, let alone Kanaka Maoli, native folks. There is no mention of like climate change, the colonial like water diversion that created this crisis, what Lahaina really means to local people. And Kanaka Maoli has been characterized as a tourist destination. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, hey, clear my calendar. I'm going to go in. Uh, so I think we did make an intervention. This is the first time I've seen major news outlets, even network news, make the connection between climate disasters and colonialism. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, 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 I am pleased with the progress, but I think people, like they see progress happen in the world and you hear things like, oh, millennials will save us. Gen Z will save us just because there's more like mixed people and people of color and, and they have a certain like political leaning but you know, any of my friends listen to Joe Rogan and whatever, and have veered far to the right as they age or as they, mm -hmm. as they grow into wealth, and it, it it's like none of these things happen naturally. Like it requires intention and like deep activism and organizing, and that's at the grassroots level, at the governmental level, institutional, but even narrative and like organizing, like trying to make the intervention at like the level of media is difficult because you know you're you're speaking against ad advertisers most of the time um 
but uh, it's it's necessary work. So you know, I encourage people that that see themselves as like change agents, um, really lean into that that uh, narrative side of the work as well. Right. The media is obviously not everything, and it's in some ways just you know for people who are not in Hawaii at all, right? It's for people on the mainland, maybe people in Asia who are interested or people across the world who've been sort of touched by this. But within the native Hawaiian community, right? Um, like what has what has the response been, right? Like is this a moment of tragedy and sort of rebuilding? Is this a moment of resilience or, you know, is it really just too close to the event to, to even to even tell? It's all the above. People are holding on to each other. They're creating spaces where just come by, whether or not you have anything to give, like we're here as a shoulder to cry on, like, because I'm working with directly with a lot of impacted folks on the ground, just making sure they have what they need. And um, yeah, like the needs are emotional, physical, spiritual. It's, It's just, it goes a lot, it's a lot deeper than just like food, water, and shelter. So the response has been one of of tears, of pain, also resilience, but also planning and what we call kue here in Hawaii, like active resistance. The resilience narrative is sometimes destructive. It just reminds me of like, you know, boiling frogs. Like, yeah, we got this. We, we're we're going to be so good at fetching <laughs> water from a whale 10 years from now. It's like, no, like. <laughs> like we we shouldn't be okay mm-hmm. with like life getting so much worse because i think that's the other thing like this this was a punctuation on a confluence of injustice that our communities were facing on maui this isn't a siloed event mm-hmm. so you know it's a call to action i think for a lot of folks on the ground like some of the i'm going through like the shelters where the evacuees are staying talking to folks and they're like we just want to rebuild like like get past fimo red cross and just like start organizing people, checking on what people need, doing construction again. And like, we can't let the disaster capitalists in. And like, these are like regular people. They're not like activists, right? They're just like, <laughs> we we can't let them grab our land. And I think it's that fighting spirit that's really inspiring me more than mm-hmm. it's like resistance, not not resilience. Right. Yeah. You, mean you're, you mentioned a little bit about how there has been diversion of water and natural resources. I was reading about some of the failures of the government response, like including the evacuation system not being appropriate, um, the, the lack of water related to some of the issues that you talked about not being available for the firefighting. I'm curious, as you are talking about be, resisting disaster capitalism, like what was supposed to work in the government and clearly hasn't worked? And then how are the people's like mutual aid systems and restructuring of this going to to replace that or push back against that at this point? Yeah. So supposedly the county's two top emergency officials were out on vacation, which is fine. I mean, people take vacations, but you need to have a clear process and accountability and like a fallback plan when that happens. It doesn't make any sense to me that there was like no point uh, like. When you're when you have that level of responsibility, the sirens were tested just two weeks prior. They're working fine. We have a robust system. They didn't go off. So yeah, the attorney general's office is investigating right now. And I think generally, like just hearing from our county officials, like they're just such a dearth of leadership right now. Um, I will say Tamara Palton, who's like of the area, 
is like of the people and she's been coming out, but like she's been having very little support from, you know, other folks at the county level. And like for the mayor to like open Lahaina and then close it three hours later while people are trying to get in and stuck on the highway, it's like, what do you expect? Like there was like a clash between police and people. Like, come on, you know, like I am 34 years old. I am I haven't been around as long as like the mayor, but I know better. And just be a, a an emotional source of like solace for people. And like the the speeches, just reading directly from papers, just cold. Like that's not it right now. That's not the vibe. Uh, so it is a, the direct support is is necessary and like the coordination, but also just just being there at like a human level. Uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely a gap of, of empathy. What, what do you think could help in terms of a federal response, let's say, right? Like what, what is needed right now? Um, I know that, uh, you know, there's been an outpouring of support in some ways, some of it good, some of it maybe not as helpful, but like what, you know, obviously the big mover here is going to be the federal government. Like what, what do you think needs to happen um, in terms of that? I mean, the federal government has actually been pretty quick to respond. I think COVID has created certain processes that we might have not had uh, in 2018. And, you know, the emergency declaration was, I mean, emergency was declared very quickly within hours. FEMA's on the ground. Unemployment insurance is being rapidly um, propagated. There are small business loans that's going out to you know, the monopoles that have been impacted. Hotels are being subsidized to house all the displaced families. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, undermine that support. Like, got to recognize where the good has been done. I think the gap is more of like trust of, of government and explaining to people like how to deal with FEMA. And that's that's been missing. So you're seeing a lot of like viral social media videos of people saying like don't accept any support from the federal government from fema etc and and like the response hasn't been clear or and when they there's been attempts at at responding to those sorts of messages it's been like don't listen to those idiots kind of like that's been the well, what's what's the what's the reasoning behind um some of those videos like why why is there resistance to accepting help from fema um i mean people have they they feel like they they'll be I think there's just a lack of trust and, and they feel like they'll be ultimately like cost them right. money or their land. Um, and is that in the colonial context, that lack of trust or are there other, you know, re- reasons for that? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, there, there are lots of reasons, you know, like yeah. there, there, there's an entire political party in, in America devoted to uh, cutting down people's trust of government. But yeah. Yeah, definitely in the context of Native Hawaiians and like any anybody who has roots in the plantation, uh, yeah. government hasn't always been a force of good here because it's been controlled by corporate far-right oligarchs. Could you tell us about the place you now work, the Green New Deal Network, what it is, what your current initiatives are, and how this disaster has shaped your thinking around your guys' plans? Sure, the Green New Deal Network is a coalition of very influential national groups. So like Greenpeace, uh, Indivisible, uh, Move On, uh, Sunrise Movement. There's 14 of them. And we came together and said, you know what? We got to make this climate thing happen. Uh, and 
we were instrumental in passing the Inflation Reduction Act, but of course we demanded way more. Um, we understand without 100% of the power, you won't get 100% of your demands. Um, so we're also continually building power so we get what our communities really need. We have 23 tables across states that are funded by us as well that are similar in structure and are doing state and local work. Um, implementing the Inflation Reduction Act to you know push the good and stop the bad, but also calling for much more. Uh, so that's like a trillion a year in investments. That's it. ending all fossil fuels. That's uh, calling for a climate emergency, not just practically, um, as as President Biden said recently, but in real life, IRL. Uh, so that's that's the work we do: direct action, lobbying, um, all the things. And what's becoming more and more common in our work is like direct disaster relief. So yeah. I think right now there's like groups that do direct aid, and there's groups that do advocacy. And when you're doing advocacy, you're like talking about climate, and it's like wonky, and you only really get people that already really care. And then the direct aid, it's like, you're not talking about politics at all, mm-hmm. but really you got to be doing both. You got to build the trust by actually giving people what they need, especially in low income communities. You're like preaching about climate. They're like, yeah, well, do you have, do you have shoes for my kids? Right. So it's like right. do that and bring them here is right. what like we're realizing is really necessary right now. So a lot of our work is going to be pivoting towards, towards that, like empowering people that as these, as these disasters become more common, um, and actually being able to reshape and rebuild their communities from the ground up and activate them towards seeing the bigger uh, systemic issues. Cause you know, especially when you're like native black, low income, like we're always like seen as the people that stop the bad projects and not like the purveyors of the better world that that work is usually still resourced and given to like the white folks. And like, no, we're the ones with like the keys to that knowledge. Like we're the keepers of like the world before it was leading us to imminent and societal doom. So like we should be ones leading that positive work forward. So to me, that's what a Green New Deal is. And, you know, this, this tragedy is only, I don't know, made me, it's going to get more aggressive, at least for me. Um, thanks for uh, coming on. And, you know, I hope just personally that you do get that time at some point here to rest and reflect. But um, yeah, yeah, thanks for the work you've done. And yeah, thanks for coming on with us. Thank you so much back at you yeah keep keep doing what you're doing we need it